Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Ball knocked down by Mount, picked up by Shackelford, into Alcindor, two more for the Bruins. Cheryl Miller, beautiful 15-foot jumper. Patrick wants to go baseline, sends it inside to Miller. And Miller tries to put a little reverse in, but what a shot by Reggie Miller. Underneath, Harold driving, reverse lay in, that's it. 15 points, he's reached the 2,000 plateau. Bibby, three points, he's six of them Saturday. He continues to sizzle. But who has it? There it is. Get time. Get time. Here's Hannah Jump, three-point specialist. And there is Sabrina Ionescu with the rebound. She has just become the first player in Division I history with 2,000 points, 1,000 assists, and 1,000 rebounds. A historic mark set by Sabrina Ionescu. Starts fading away. Welcome back into Believe in Pac-12 Basketball, another edition here on the Believe Podcast Network as we bring you all the latest from the Conference of Champions, what's going to be going on with the season. Obviously, it's going to start, and we're happy, but again, it's uh, crazy times. Everything has to be safe. We're plowing through it. I'm Michael Caratino, former Sun Devil alum. Amon Starks, my co-host, again, had uh, training uh, to do, but we are lucky enough to be joined by Bruce Pascoe. He's been writing well for the Arizona Daily Star, but in Tucson, but Tucson.com, as uh, like Bruce told me, all the hipsters and the kids know it as. Um, since, well, he's been in Tucson since 96. And the reason why we're having him on today, obviously, legendary head coach, the Hall of Fame head coach, Luke Olson, uh, passed away at 85 years old. The last year was pretty tough for Coach Olson, I know, health wise. But what a phenomenal job he did at Arizona, leaving Iowa. Again, many of the Midwesterners weren't too happy, but he turned Tucson into a destination spot. And for Bruce, I mean, he showed up in uh, 96, and, man, it was, uh, it, was, uh, it was a perfect reward because uh, less than a year later, you're, uh, you're in Indianapolis with uh, Luke and the boys, and they're bringing home their first national title. So, Bruce, thanks for joining us. But what was that like for you? Oh, that was something else. I mean, we, I, you know, I was actually covering baseball back then, but we had uh, four reporters there, two photographers. Uh, we just followed everybody everywhere we could. And, and uh, you know, it was, it was a huge deal. And, and just, the, I mean, those were the days. It was the, the peak of everything. And there was over, even before that title, there was a, you know, obviously there had been a, a good decade of, of real excitement around this team since they had been to the final four in 88 and got things going in the, in the mid to late eighties. And then uh, went again in 94 and, and everybody knew this team would be good. But I think the thought was that 98 was going to be really good. That was the expectations. And then this 97 team kind of snuck in there and uh, just turned into a buzzsaw that nobody really expected. So it was really a, a really neat story. And when you talk about that 97 team, I mean, we'll get into Lutus coaching jobs. I mean, it was a guard conference. Uh, Mike Bibby obviously played at Shadow Mountain High School up in the Valley and committed to U of A very, very early. I want to say maybe after his sophomore year um, or maybe, yeah, towards the end of his sophomore year, but either way, committed to Arizona. And when he came in, even as a freshman, especially as the season went on, I know Miles Simon dealt with injury and they had to get him back, but Mike Bibby seemed to be that missing piece for, uh, for Lou Dolson's first national title. It was a very deep and talented team, but did you kind of get that feel with as the season went on that Bibby was even more of a, more of a, I guess, collective piece of the team? Yeah, I mean, and, and I think it was just a great mix because he came in as talented as he was, but he was a freshman. But because they had 
a lot of sophomores and juniors really leading that team. He didn't have to be the guy doing everything and he could just be who he was, which was really, really good. And uh, it was just, uh, you know, great mix. I mean, you know, Miles Simon's probably the sort of the vocal leader of that team. And he was a, a, a soft or a junior, excuse me, I think at that time. And then, uh, you know, they had, uh, they had a nice mix of kind of, uh, you know, a real good shooter, Michael Dickerson, uh, and then a couple of really athletic, uh, slender, but athletic big guys with a Bramlin, and Bennett Davison. And, and, uh, you know, and also those guys were really kind of glue guys, like really easy to get along with. I just think it was a, a really good mix because, uh, you know, it just, you know, it just appeared like it really made it easy for Bibby to, to slip in there and, and do what he could do and, and take that team to another level. Yeah. Yeah, because they came in as a four seed, and not that they weren't one of the favorites, but you figure at four, a lot of people are going with the ones, maybe a two seed, a three seed here and there, but as a four seed, what was the atmosphere, though, like, especially as the season went on? You go from non-conference play into conference play and seeing how good they are, but what was the energy like in Tucson at that time, Bruce? Well, I actually, I, you know, I, and I wasn't the beak. I was actually covering more women's basketball and baseball at that time. But, I, you know, being an observer, I think it was, um, you know, it was excitement. But, again, I think it was the feeling was this is building towards the next year when some of these guys were going to be juniors and seniors. And it was a little bit of a surprise. I mean, they finished, I think, fourth or maybe even fifth in the Pac-10. They lost, if I remember right, they lost their last two games of the regular season in the Bay Area to Cal and Stanford at zero, zero expectations going in the tournament. It was like, okay, this team might win a game or two or whatever. And, and then they almost lost in the first round. So it was, you know, I don't think it really started building in that Kansas game in the sweet 16. Then it was like, wait a minute, what? Yeah. And, and from there it was pretty special. Yeah. Now loot never seemed to, uh, to just really, I mean, he, yeah, he would talk to officials, but he never had that panic about him no matter what. And he brought guys in. What was, for, for people out there that, you know, saw Lou Wilson from afar, but what was he like to, to be around? I mean, from everything I've seen, I mean, you guys have obviously done a phenomenal job, but even as a lucky college kid, I guess I should say, when I was at ASU, I had a, for a project, I had to go interview him, Bruce, and he sat down with me, so I got a few minutes. But, uh, but he never seemed, you know, just anxious on the sideline or anything. He's always had that calm, cool demeanor with his players. But what, from the other side of it, as a reporter, what was it like to be around him? I think probably the biggest thing that strikes me is just his consistency. And, uh, you know, he'd get a little angry here or there. Certainly he would at us sometimes if there were questions he didn't like or whatever. But, you know, I think on the sidelines and, and practices and uh, recruiting, it was just the same guy. And, uh, you know, a little bit distant sometimes with his current players. Uh, you know, some people thought he was aloof, but uh, it was more just his – his way, his way out. him, and, and as fact as a lot of his players found, you know, once they got done playing, they became his friends and, you know, they have these reunions over the year, uh, just, you know, every guy, if they didn't have some kind of conflict and even a lot of times if they did, they'd get out of it and come back and they played, they had games sometimes, sometimes they had camps. Uh, and then there were sometimes just, I think for his 80th birthday, a bunch of guys came back and, you know, it wasn't even a public thing. They just, everybody was like, clear your calendars. We're going to go celebrate loot. So, so it was kind of, you know, that's the way he was that way, I think. But, uh, you know, as far as in the games, not necessarily, a, a, you know, a screaming or yelling, but he did have a way about him if he was upset about, you know, if he would not like what you did, he'd give you a quick hook wouldn't say a word maybe, you know, but you'd be out of the game. So you get that message that way. And if he, he'd look at the refs a certain way, or he'd look at his guys a certain way. And he, you know, and he's famous for not swearing. And because he didn't have to swear because he literally could look at you and say something and just give you that glare. And it was like, you know, that was enough intimidation. I mean, he, he was that way. So it was just a, you know, um, uh, kind of a remarkable approach that, that he was able to do that. And for so many decades uh, as well. Absolutely. People always say the games change, players change, coaches have to react to it, but he seemed to definitely do it. And you mentioned, obviously, the relationships he had. I mean, always, people always say, you know, the cliche, oh, coaches are, you know, like maybe second father figures. It just seemed like he had that great relationship. Like you said, I mean, some players may have had issues, but what are some of the stories that you've heard from from former players that just kind of kind of shows that it was it was not as much about basketball. Everything wasn't just basketball 
for Luke, but obviously relationships and making sure that, you know, these guys are on, on the, the up and up after they leave here. Yeah, I think um, a, a couple of things. I think, um, you know, I was talking to uh, Jawan McClellan, who played towards the end of Lute's uh, years, actually his Lute's last three years. And it struck, he mentioned that, uh, you know, his dad died after his freshman year of a heart attack in Houston. Uh, and Lute was in Italy at the time. I believe one of his sons lived there or something. And and literally Lute flew back from Italy, spent the day in Houston, and then went back to Italy just so he could be there for the service and to talk to Juwan a little bit. And then not only did he do that, but he told Juwan, who was, you know, he was a five-star player, really good player. He got beset by injuries. It was never what he, he might have been. But uh, he was telling me that while they were talking, Lute went to him and without Juwan even saying anything, said, look, if you want to transfer, if you want to be closer to home, if you want to play for Houston or Texas, I'll do anything in my power to get you there and, and see if we can get you a waiver to get eligible right away. I mean, and that was like, he's basically telling a five-star player, I, you know, I care about you more than your talent. That was, you know, that was one thing I think, you know, way back, you know, I think Steve Kerr went through a similar deal where his dad was murdered. Uh, you know, that story is pretty well, well known, but obviously him and Lou bonded. I don't know exactly what went, went behind the scenes, but I do know that, Lute was, you know, pretty much a second father to, to Steve and still is. And Steve Kerr remained probably, he probably was the closest former player to Lute uh, as well. And so there's that. I mean, I think, and, you know, there's a lot of stories like that. I think, you know, he wasn't buddy-buddy. He wasn't a player's coach. Like I said, it was more after. And then in certain cases when, when he had extreme things going on, he would, he, would, he, would, he, would, he would deal with them on that level. But I think he kept a little bit of distance with most while they were players. And, and I think, but the re, one reason he was able to do that so well was that his wife, his first wife, Bobby, uh, you know, b- behind the scenes in this, uh, she was sort of that warm person that she was like the team mom they used to call her. Um, everybody could sort of confide in her and it was very common. And even with us in the media, sometimes he, Lute would be very upset about something. And she just, she just greet you with a warm smile. Like, how is your, how are you doing today? And you know, what's going on or whatever. And, and people felt comfortable around him. He also had Jim Rosborough, a long time assistant with him, who was very personable. Guys could go to him. He joked around. He was sort of like Lutz alter ego or whatever you want to call it. Um, so he had he surrounded himself smartly with people that does sort of this whole thing work. Um, but I think, uh, you know, by and large, it, it was, you know, that's, that's the way he, he was able to do it and, and just, um, you know, and then kept, you know, whatever he felt a little bit of distance, but it was, it was an interesting dynamic, the way he was able to work with people around him with his wife. And then, and then, uh, you know, taking these guys on as friends later in his life. Oh, absolutely. When you look at that too, though, I mean, coaches know reporters have to do jobs. And from, I mean, even the, like I said, even when he first got here, but they started winning, going to the tournament. It's one of those things where, you know, guys can't just ask meatball questions. You got to be fair. I mean, was, was he was he at least you know in dealing with it felt that if the media was being fair, he was okay. Yeah, I think so. I, honestly, I think it's like pretty much every coach. There, uh, I mean, most of them. They're they're very you know their world, especially in college where there's no regulations like there's the NBA. They can control so many things, but the one thing they can't control is the media. And if there's something that's a little bit a little bit sticky to ask about they might get asked about it and they can't you know they can't avoid it and and so uh, there's that and yeah he I think by and large I think he knew that we were fair and that's why I think in the long run I got along with him but there were many times short term where he'd be mad I remember one time when you know there was interviews and he wouldn't let me talk to his players because he was so mad at something I had asked him it was just you know and there it's just there there were a couple of instances like that um but uh, but but then again, you know, and I remember when he came back after his year off, he had this very contentious press conference when he, he said he was coming back at the end of uh, 07, 08. And, and uh, he kind of criticized some of us. And then but, you know, and then two, three, four years later, never had a problem reaching him. He was always pleasant. No problem. It's just, you know, he, he moved on from it. And so I think he I think he realized deep down, as most coaches do, that we're just doing our jobs. And, you know, it's just, it's just a little frustrating for them on, at the time. And, and then you move on. Did I also see, too, that uh, pretty sure I saw an article somewhere. Maybe, maybe it was yours because, I mean, once he passed, believe me, I've read so much. And obviously your guys' coverage has been phenomenal. But what, 
he uh, got on a he got back on a plane with his wife and he was answering fan mail. Oh yeah, he was famous for that. Yeah, no, he he would do. Yeah, I mean, and as somebody posted too, like almost anybody who had any interaction with him, you know, writing him or meeting him at a camp or whatever. Myself, he wrote me a card about what we did a special section on him, which you know we were going to do anyway. It wasn't like we were trying to do anything different, but um, you know, he he was famous for handwriting notes and uh, and you know uh, just just taking his time to do that. And I think um, I think that that helped him in the long run. He was very good at uh you know recruiting and relationships that way too i think i think you know in a way i think in a way he was a little bit almost as public as he was i think he's a little bit introverted and i think he expressed himself better almost in the writing form and and then having some people around him like that and it was just his way to communicate and it was really effective i mean you know you think about it uh it's funny how in this day and age when nobody writes letters at all how many people have i mean literally have posted to twitter people posting Twitter pictures of cards they got from Loodles. And I have seen so many of those in the last two weeks, you wouldn't believe it, but everybody's got one, you know, and, and it's like, here's my story about coach. O. he did this and he sent me this or whatever. That's why he did it. Yeah. I got to say, I mean, you're talking about stories and uh, I remember I did, uh, of course I sent him a thank you note, which I addressed. I mean, I sent it down here and I don't, I hope he got it. Um, but just sitting with him and, you know, interviewing him, like, again, being a student at, you know, ASU for my broadcasting class and, you know, kind of, I, I kind of razzed him a little bit about, you know, him and at the time and Mike Montgomery. And I want to say, what was it, Steve Lavin not wanting a, a Pac-10 tournament because those three didn't care because like you said, they could, you know, they always put themselves in a position that they were going to the tournament anyway. So it was one of those things, but no, I mean, to be that again, as a college coach, it's different than a pro coach, as we know. I mean, recruiting truly never really stops. Um, and in their prepping, and yeah, I mean, they have time for themselves. You said go on a vacation. But the fact that he, you know, took the time to do that, and like you said, I mean, I know in the article I saw that Bobby was, you know, part of it, and she would uh, address or read him to him, and he would respond. I mean, just the fact that you know, you take the time, it shows, because to me, and especially even then as a player, like right in this day and age, not writing letters, but as a player, I mean, that attention to detail and him turning it into basically a guard, it was the premier, in my opinion, you know, conference homer or not, Bruce, but it was the premier guard school in the country, um, especially with depth. Maybe not, you know, there could be a top guard that was obviously at other schools, but depth-wise, I mean, he always had the guards that came through here that just people spun their heads so I mean yeah it's um as as they started winning more and the pressure came on did you I mean there's always pressure for winning as we know but as this as the as the years went by and I mean they're they're doing better I mean they win that title in 97 um did you did it ever feel maybe from the outside that that he felt more pressured like you said do you think that kind of introvert part of him it was always just about coaching his guys and the rest would take care of itself yeah, I, that's a good question. I don't know really what was inside him. It's hard to tell because, again, he is so the same kind of almost stoic in some ways. And maybe that's his Scandinavian roots or I don't know what it is but about him. But, uh, you know, he – I think there was some, but I don't know that it was as much externally as you might think. He probably felt – I got the impression, you know, every year there was some pressure and, uh, you know, I, I think he, he must have, you know, they, they had some tough first round exits. They were known for that. And the, they, they lost three of them in the 90s, which I'm sure must have eaten away at him. I know his assistants have told me that. He's never said that, though. So it's it's tough to say what he ever felt. And then, you know, you had those losses. You had that 98 team, which literally was the national championships a year with year more experience. And they were even better during the regular season. And they got absolutely drummed by Utah in the uh, Elite Eight. And that's, that's you, know, I, you know, again, he never said it, but... You just wonder if that, that that eats away at you, but but they had a lot of great great teams after that. They they went to the Final Four in '01, uh, almost won the that year. Uh, you know, had he had a, a terrific coaching job the following year when he lost a bunch of guys and they were way better than expected in '02, and then 2002-03 was uh, you know they were number one most of that season, just lost by a bucket in the Elite Eight, and then '05 also lost in the Elite Eight. Uh, 
you know, as well. So it, you know, a lot of, a lot of good times, a lot of, a lot of heartbreak, but that's, that's college basketball in the tournament. So I, you know, how he, how he handled it, I don't know. He was, he was often the same, but, uh, but, you, but you do kind of wonder. Yeah. I mean, when you say Lou Olson, we, we, uh, Ahmad and I had ranked our coaches, the top, we did the top 12 in the conference of all time. And I know I mentioned to you and there's no way you can't put John Wooden number one. Um, again, the guys he got in, how he was able to do it. People say, well, wasn't as many teams. It doesn't matter. Greatness is greatness at any level. Plus, I mean, I think John Wooden, I heard a story a few times with the Pirates, actually, Bruce offered him a managerial job after he retired from UCLA. So I was like, wow, you talk about uh, if a guy could win. But yeah, um, but Lute Olson, I mean, the national title in 97. Between Iowa and Arizona, 27 NCAA appearances, 13 Sweet 16s, five Final Fours, 11 Pac-12 uh, regular season championships, four uh, well, Pac-10 tournament championships. Um, he had a one Big Ten regular season title. Um, I mean, the Basketball Hall of Fame well-deserved in 2002 in the National Coaches uh, Hall of Fame, I think in 2006 and again in 2009, or 2019. Yeah, if I remember right, he was in the the inaugural class, but there was that was when they first started that. So they they kind of spread it out, and he officially was inaugurated later. So something like that. But I mean, you see that, and his his overall record. I mean, at Arizona, he was uh, five eighty nine and one eighty seven, and then seven eighty and two eighty overall. Um, it's just he he had a vision. And to me, I mean, from the outside, you know, like I said, I talked to him, and not that he gave up any trade secrets, but. You know, coaches have to have a vision. Yes, they have to adjust. But like you said, I mean, with, with the way he handled things, it just seemed like he had that vision. He went that way. Getting Sean Elliott, you know, a local kid to stay here back in the day, obviously that was huge. Um, but then the guys he was able to sell, I mean, even as a salesman, though, because, again, and you know, people can say, oh, you know, ASU of a robbery. It's not picking on Tucson. A lot of college towns have that problem. I mean, you're, you have to sell the college. But when kids come here and they've been to maybe – you know, say they're, if they're being recruited by Arizona, say maybe they've been to, you know, North Carolina or Kentucky, um, you know, or even UCLA here on the West Coast. I mean, to sell it, too, is even a bigger challenge. And it seemed like that was just no issue for Luke. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, you know, and that's actually the sort of the, I think it gets underplayed a little bit, how little recruiting turf you have when you're a coach at Arizona. I mean, Sean Elliott literally – he was more than once a generation. I mean, there literally hasn't been anybody like him in Tucson since 1983 or whatever it was when he came out. Uh, you just, you know, and, and even statewide, he's got, you know, he had Mike Bibby, Richard Jefferson out of Phoenix, a couple other guys here or there. But for the most part, he had to recruit California really hard and, and nationally really hard. And they, they made a point of checking in, you know, random recruits around the country. And if, if they sensed, an interest in that kid leaving, they would, they would start recruiting him. They wouldn't waste their time with, uh, you know, guys that didn't want to make that move, but they, and they got a few guys out of Chicago, a few guys out of Texas, but, uh, and also in the, in the Pacific Northwest as well. But it was, you know, they had to, they had to do that. I mean, and that's, that's the thing. Cause there were, you know, so I think what helped him is that, yes, he got Sean Elliott and that was absolutely the number one uh, building block sort of, so to speak. And then he, uh, you know, and then he developed, found Steve Kerr out of nowhere and developed him into the player he became. And that became a recruiting tool because it's like, hey, if you're even if you're only three stars or whatever, look what I can turn you into. So you had that. And then you have, uh, you know, as you get better, you get Damon Stoudemire's and Sean Ellis who go into the league. And then then you start selling yourself because you're putting guys in the league. And then then everybody wants to play there. And then, of course, when they won that championship after they had the championship, the guys who came in for the core of that 01 Final Four team, those were guys that were fell in love with Arizona during the championship year. And, and you know, that kind of made recruiting a little bit easier <laughs> to get those guys. And so it just keeps building, you know. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I was kind of with you on that, even, you know, being at ASU at the time, but I really thought when they won in 97 that because a lot of saying, oh, it could be a year early. And, you know, people are like, oh, I don't know if they can do it. I mean, it was. I thought they would repeat in 98 too, because I'm like, there's no way that team doesn't get even better. Like it's just, it's one of those things where it, 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 in a way it kind of baffled me 
But at the same time, again, some things have to go your way. It did for the year before. But that 0-1 team, I mean, I know Gilbert Arenas, you and I touched base before. That 0-1 team um, for Lute, I mean, very, very talented. But Arenas, you know, Richard Jefferson was on that team, as, a, as we had mentioned. But goes had was a little banged up, but still goes four for 18. And I, even when Richard Jefferson talks about it till this day, you can you just kind of see that sparkle in his eye feeling that they definitely were the better team in that game and the best team in the country. But unfortunately, Arenas just had that tough shooting night. And uh, I mean, what, it was only a four point game, right? Yeah, I, th I think so. I don't have in front of me, but yeah. And, and I know, I know, I remember thinking that he, you know, he only needed to hit a two or three more shots and it might've been different. And there, there was some talk that his back was tweaked before that game and nobody really knew how bad it was at the time. You know, there was a controversial call. I remember Jay Williams was was that he got the benefit of, and he even joked about that. You know, years a couple of years ago when he came back here. You know, and and he knows he's still a, a villain, and uh, you know, longtime Arizona fans' eyes or whatever. Uh, so yeah, but you know, it speaks to it's college basketball. It's one and done, or in the tournament, you one and out or whatever. Uh, anything can happen. And in '01, they had the bad breaks there. In '98, yeah, Utah have an unusual triangle and two they decided to gamble that Mike Dickerson was going to be off and they went hard after Bibby and Simon and lo and behold Michael Dickerson for some reason couldn't shoot that day and and they just got drilled it was you know it's just like one of those things and you can't recover because it's only one game so you know I mean there's it's the same thing with some of these these first round losses that uh you know who, who you know these teams have these great years and then they run into Steve Nash and Santa Clara or whatever. And nobody knew who Steve Nash was at the time, but he was terrific. And, and they, you know, probably did feel a little pressure there. There's pressure on everybody in that first round and uh, particularly, and uh, you know, anything can happen, but it couldn't go the other way as it showed in 97 as well. Yeah. And to, it was 82 72 was the final, but you're right. I think there was just a few late hoops at that point, but you're right. I mean, arenas, having that that tough game but yeah you know and a lot of my one of my good friends who uh throughout the years his family's been a I mean they've been diehard Suns fans I mean since I think his grandfather his grandparents were here in the uh when the Suns came into the league so the the Suns are definitely their team and they can spit everything out and when um when when uh oh was it Richard Jefferson came to town because they were always just so uh so so bitter um it's like Richard Jefferson like had the scowl on their sign because it, in the one, the sign they were saying something, but in the corner it had the Duke and Arizona score on the sign because they just couldn't stand <laughs> U of A. But I mean, Richard Jefferson, when you see him talk about it till this day, it's like that, that in, like I said, that in his eye, knowing that feeling that, yeah, Duke was a good team, but that they were a better team and it just didn't, it didn't happen that night. So for coach Olson, I mean, you know, having the health issues was obviously tough, but, he knew he felt he would be able to come back. So he had that year off. I mean, obviously it had to be tough on the university. You just don't want to cut ties with him if he feels like he can still coach afterwards. But I mean, how tough was that situation with the university and him and even probably more so frustration because he's not getting to do the one thing he loves. Yeah. I think everybody was frustrated. Uh, players, administrators, him, you know, media, you know, you name it. It was a difficult situation, but the number one thing about it, it was, it was Lute Olson. He was going through some health problems. Everybody was sympathetic to that. The university was going to let him do whatever he felt he needed to do at the time. What was awkward about it was that at the time he said it was just going to be an indefinite leave of absence. And everybody was like, what does that mean? Like three days, three weeks, three months, the whole season, nobody really knew. And then it, it sort of came, uh, you know, a couple weeks, then they, uh, you know, Kevin O'Neill became the interim coach. Then um, it wasn't clear if he was coming back. And then I think into December, early, maybe late November, it became pretty clear he wasn't coming back that season at all. Then there was talk about whether Kevin O'Neill was going to be the permanent replacement for him. Uh, and then, then, then at the, by, you know, in that season kind of went unanswered most of the season about what was really happening there. And then at the end of the season, uh, that's when Lute had that press conference where he came back and said, I'm coming back. And, uh, and Kevin O'Neill was gone. Uh, Josh Passner left for Memphis, I believe that spring, uh, a lot of things happened. And then, um, 
well, maybe it wasn't, maybe that was the next spring. But anyway, there were a lot of transition. Luke came back with every intention of coming back. But, you know, unfortunately for him, uh, his health issues, he was dealing with uh, a lot of anxiety. Uh, he said it later, anxiety and depression later came out according to one of his doctors that he had a stroke at some point that may have exacerbated these things. So I think he wanted to coach, still had it in him. Apparently that off season, he was fine. He was doing a little recruiting and then they had the early practices and fine. But I think as the season got closer, he realized, yeah, I can't do it. And, and I think it was the end of October, he stepped down for good. So then they went into another situation where they had to name an interim coach and uh, the, the associate head coach at the time, Mike Dunlap, uh, you know, there was some question about that. He ultimately didn't take it. And Russ Pinnell took it over, although they ended up pretty much coaching as a team that year and actually had a pretty good year. They, they kind of bonded in the, in the wake of all this stuff and got to the Sweet 16 beyond everyone's expectations. Granted, they had a couple of NBA guys on that, that team, but, um, but it was just a, just a really crazy time. And I think more importantly for the program, for, for Lute, obviously he did – what he had to do. And, and I think fortunately for him and his family, after those years were over, he got better. And I think he was able to live and, you know, you know, pretty good life at, by all appearances the last 10 years of doing fundraising for the school. It seemed happy every time I talked to him, when I see a story about him or on TV or something, it seemed like, you know, same old guy. So that was good to see. But, uh, but unfortunately it did set the program back. And I don't think that was necessarily any fault of his own Consciously, I don't think he would have liked to hurt the program, but it did uh, just because of when you lose that many years with interim coaches, you're setting yourself back tremendously in recruiting. I mean, the, the, that old saying about recruiting, you, it's like shaving. You have to do it every day. Well, they didn't do it for three years. So you can imagine. And then all of a sudden, they finally get Sean Miller, which was, you know, frankly, a little bit of an upset and a pretty well-accomplished uh, coach at Xavier. And he came in. I don't, I don't know, but it, I don't know that he realized he had as much to do as he did as far as recruiting and getting back and just being able to talk to four and five star guys and say, yeah, we're Arizona. Remember us, you know, we're, we're actually going to be pretty good. You know, that would, that had sort of been forgotten. It doesn't take long for recruits to forget about you because they're only 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. And, and that's kind of what was happening. And Miller saved him from that, you know, after a couple of years, but it did, it, you know, there were, uh, there was a, a lag there in the program because of what they went through. And again, no, no fault to, to loot for what he went through, but it was, it was challenging for everybody. And that wasn't the first, I mean, challenge that he had, obviously his, uh, his, uh, like you said, his first wife, Bobby, she un unfortunately passed away in 2001. Yeah. It, well, actually it was new. It was new year's Eve and she, she, she passed in the early hours of uh, January 1st, if I remember right. And he's obviously in the middle of, you know, coaching a season. What was, what was that? I mean, again, that's gut wrenching. You lose, you know, your wife, the kids lost their, you know, a mother, but at the same time, like how, how did you feel that Luke was, uh, was handling that? Did people think he might take, you know, a leave for a little bit or how, how did he handle that? He did. He took, uh, I believe six games, five or six games. Um, and I think that the thought at the time was, is he coming back too soon? I mean, like it was like January 18th and they're playing USC at home or something like that. And he came back, but you know, the, the other side of it is what else do you do? I mean, there is certainly, you know, he's certainly going through it in the morning and, and hanging, you know, it's just, it was awful. I'm, I'm sure. I mean, Bobby, you know, I mean, that situation is awful for anybody, but I think Bobby, you know, they had been married, they were high school sweethearts. I mean, they, you know, it was like, you know, they were just so intertwined in so many ways. And, uh, you know, so it was hard for any of us to really get a feel for what he really was going through. So he kept that close to the vest. I mean, he was pretty emotion wise. He was pretty just kind of nobody really wanted to bring it up. But even if they did, it was just kind of, he didn't have much to say. Yeah. And I think, uh, yeah. And I think out of respect for him, I don't think a lot of people really probed him as like, okay, coach, if you feel good, we're, we'll take you back. I think that's the way the school was. And I, you know, and he talked about it a little bit with us. I don't remember, but uh, yeah, I don't think he went into too much detail, but I think the, the bottom line was that he felt as, as some people do in this situation, that it's, it's a form of healing go back and do what you do. And at least for those hours, you feel good. He loved to coach, He's, you know, until the, until the end, you know, and, and so I think that was, it was therapeutic for him to get back there. I think that's, that's the way it looked. And as it turned out, 
that team really, you know, rallied around him. And, and that was, that became the, uh, you know, that last final four team that he had. And, you know, granted that team was very talented, don't get me wrong, but, but the fact that they were able to survive that, the, the team actually did kind of flounder there for a little bit when he was, when he was out, I think they lost a couple of games during that stretch when he took a leave of absence and then, uh, you know, weren't great really. They didn't really hit their stride until maybe after he'd been back maybe a few weeks, maybe a month. And then all of a sudden it started to click. They were playing together there and, and they sort of became, you know, kind of a four Bobby thing. I think they, they played off of that, uh, that as well. And ironically, the, the, the final four that year was in Minneapolis, which is, you know, the city where they, you know, in all intents and purposes were from, I think they were, you know, they, they were from North Dakota. Um, but, but Lute went to college there and, uh, and married Bobby when, when he was, when he was going to school there and, driving seven up delivery trucks in the middle of the night to try and get by. I mean, just the stories and they, that all early years happened in Minnesota. So it was just kind of, kind of crazy the way that all came for full soaker like that, but it's hard to imagine uh, exactly what was going through his mind. Cause I don't think any of us know, honestly, but, uh, but they, you know, they did, you know, they did the best they could on the court. And, and I think he did as well. Absolutely. And then with, uh, with, you know, I know you mentioned before, I mean, Steve Kerr and, you know, Sean Elliott, but Steve Kerr, his, his, what he went through and I mean, he, he kept playing basketball. He said Arizona came in late and it was the only offer he really, he had. So of course he jumped on it, but what was his, like with, with Steve Kerr and even, so I know you had that great article about, you know, Jason Gardner and the mistakes, you know, the mistake that he made, you know, with suspicion of, you know, driving under the influence in Indiana and losing his job. But, I mean, with those two kids, like Steve Kerr and, and Jason Gardner, you saw them, like you said, at events. But what, did that relationship, you know, maybe even with Steve Kerr kind of seem more, a little more closer? Not that Lute Olson was trying to be his dad or anything, but just did it seem, you know, like it, it was, there was just more of that bigger bond always there? Because, I mean, Steve Kerr's obviously always said great things about Arizona and Lute Olson, and, you know, not that he's going to go after him. But with guys like Kerr and Gardner, I mean, do you see just kind of that, that relationship just went way beyond basketball. I mean, I know we mentioned it earlier, but how is like those two guys' situations a little bit different? Yeah, they, yeah, it, it varied. I'm sure that's true with every coach. But uh, and by the way, the funny thing about Kerr and probably a lot of people know the story, but back when they were watching him at some random tournament in Long Beach or something, and apparently Bobby was there, and she looked at him and said, "Lute, you've got to be kidding." this guy like he's slow what what do you you know and uh, but he just saw something but anyway anyway he became not only an amazing player but yeah uh you know kind of loot was a father to him and then towards the end it was almost like you know it was almost like steve became one of his kids kind of helping him through some of the tough times and i remember i believe it was sometime in february when uh the warriors were playing the suns and him and uh, one of his other guys he had a couple guys on his staff with ties but I can't remember who it was but they came down and literally drove down from Phoenix for like for a couple hours just to just to sit with him and I think you know that might have been the last time anybody outside saw him in person I don't know I know he talked on the phone with a bunch of guys over this last summer but um but yeah just uh you know it was almost like uh, yeah they I don't know how you describe it maybe you know, maybe a father son thing, but maybe almost just a, a real friendship bond as well. I, you know, and I know there was that there was Steve always checking in. I know whenever something came up, uh, you know, Steve, whether he was coaching the Warriors or, or talking to doing working for Turner or whatever, he was always available for, for people like me or whatever to, to bounce stuff off him. How was Lou doing? What's going on? He, he was always up on it. And, uh, you know, I remember he, he spearheaded the funding to help the statue that they have on the, the north side of McHale you know that probably that might not have happened without Steve Kerr really kind of pushing for that behind the scenes and and uh you know I think he helped fund it as well so it just yeah it goes it goes beyond I think I think um you know it depends on individually I think some of the guys like I said a lot of times after they they stopped playing for him they they became closer um, almost every one of them will tell you stories about, yeah, I talked to him this, that summer and we had a great time or whatever, you know, that there's a lot of those. I think Gardner, Gardner said that they would, you know, Gardner went into coaching himself. Um, they would talk when they would just be at final fours. And then he said maybe once a year. Um, so he wasn't super close to him, but, but always felt that influence. And, and, uh, Gardner made a reference to, yeah, he was, you know, uh, arrested for DUI, stepped down from his job. 
at uh, IUPUI where he was, you know, maybe going to make a turn. He had a team that was pretty good coming back. It was really kind of a tough break for him career-wise. And, uh, you know, he made the comment that Lute didn't, he didn't talk to Lute directly about that, but he said he kind of drew from that, you know, where Lute was always talking about battling through adversity and doing the right thing, et cetera, which is, you know, kind of what he did. And he's bounced on his feet this year. He's going to coach his old high school program in Indianapolis. And, uh, you know, you know, you hope for him and it goes well. Oh, absolutely. And then when you look back, I mean, with uh, like throughout the time, again, like you said, covering loot and I mean, eh, having disagreements here or there, but overall, what are some of your uh, kind of fun memories, maybe laughable and you ask kind of a, because I mean, we've all been there asking a silly, ridiculous, maybe you haven't, I know I have, but asking a silly, ridiculous question or um, just in spending time with them outside, what, what are some of the other moments that you may have had, like with loot, the kind of separate of just getting a story and just kind of crossing paths with them. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think, um, a lot of it probably is through players hearing stories. I think, you know, I, you know, I, I just covered sort of the tail end of his career and, and, and got to know him a little bit that way. But I think, I think the, the thing that was, was nice was that, uh, you know, if you needed to, you know, most coaches are pretty limited on time and they, they'll have their press conferences and they, they'd really rather not talk to you outside of that. But I think probably, and this isn't one particular memory, but I just, I just remember appreciating the fact that if I really had some news breaking where I needed his comment, I could call him, you know, on his cell phone in some cases towards the end that he, or when he was during season, usually go through his secretary and he'd get back to you pretty quickly. And then, you know, after a press conference, if it was something, uh, you wanted to ask about privately, uh, you know, where he didn't, you know, he'd be okay with you following him for a few minutes and that, you know, that, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's kind of impinging on their, you know, their personal time. But I think he saw it as part of the job and, you, you, you know, that again, we were, you know, doing, doing what, what doing, you know, our job the best of, that we could that way too. So I think it was just sort of a, you know, a respectful thing that, that he did like that. But, but again, he didn't get super close to us just like he didn't with his players, really. I think that was, that was just the way he did. And that was, that was fine. It was actually, you know, sometimes you have coaches that try and get too close and, and they're kind of, you know, try and buddy up to you. So you'll write nice things. He wasn't like that. So, you know, in that, in that sense, that was refreshing. So, yeah. And inevitably like you're saying with his players, not that, you know, he wasn't looking out for him or caring, but, the closeness actually came after they left the program. Yeah. Well, with some exceptions, I think there was, you know, again, with, with the tragedies involving, or if you had an injury, I mean, you know, he showed compassion. People, people knew that, but if it was just, you know, your everyday stuff, a lot of times, uh, you know, your everyday adversity, I think he would have some talks, but he'd also have his assistants do some of that. You know, if the guys were just complaining about playing time or whatever, you know, it, it, it was, it was different like that, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to think any one, one particular moment, but, uh, you know, I think the main thing is, you know, I just, especially for, for somebody of his, uh, you know, stature and being here as long as he was, just that he was willing for the most part to deal with us and, you know, in a professional way, it was helpful, very helpful. And then obviously after he retired and stepped away, like you said, stayed in Tucson, um, when he, he, he was at a good amount of the home games. I mean, when his health was, you know, good, but he was always at a good amount of the home games and people would always see him. I mean, was he even, was he as, like, was he even more, was he as in, engaging then with, you know, with fans um, coming back to games? I mean, obviously it looked like he enjoyed it, but I mean, from your eyes, was it something that he enjoyed, you know, because some coaches retire and it's like, they still have that itch. So like you said, they want to do it. So it's, 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 it's tough to cross, but it looked like, you know, he was, he was happy with it when he, you know, came to home games. I mean, everybody always uh, gave him a standing O, it seemed like. Yeah, I think he actually did. It seemed like, because that could be a really tough thing, especially, but I think he kept, and he had a point of keeping his distance early in Sean Miller's first years. Didn't come around all the time. And when he did, he would literally just come in and sit at a seat. He didn't like to make a big deal because you don't want to feel like you're shadowing over Sean Miller. And I think he was aware of that. In fact, he said, I think it's true that uh, Sean at one point said to him, like, hey, anytime you want to come to practice, come hang out, your, your door's open. And Lutz said, no, no, I don't want to do that. And I don't want to feel like I'm in your way or whatever. And I don't think he did. And, you know, I, I think, but I think, yeah, the last few years where it was clear that Lou was 
it's, you know, Lute was just a, you know, a retired guy who loves basketball, wanting to go to the games. And I think that it became really more comfortable for everybody. He, uh, you know, you just see him up there and he went to a lot of women's games, frankly, uh, you know, the last years as well, uh, especially, you know, once Adia, Adia Barnes got to go in there and, and has been kind of an ally for them as well. So, so, you know, it's, 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 it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of like uh, the way John Wooden would keep some distance and then, but he would still sit, you'd see him, whatever it was, 12 rows up at UCLA. He didn't want to be in the front row, anything close to it. And Lute was the same way. It was like, I think Lute's seats were about 20 rows up or something, you know, but, but uh, it definitely kept some distance and which is hard to do, but it, but it seemed like that, that seemed to work out for everybody. Yeah, because the other side is you, at least, you, you know, yeah, you, you get to be a fan and kind of go with the ups and downs of the game. But as a coach, you're always watching the game differently anyway. And I want to ask you, too, I mean, you mentioned Sean Miller there, but it's always tough being the guy after the guy. I mean, like you just mentioned John Wooden and anybody that came after him, like the comparisons are going to start coming within, you know, a year. Um, but for Sean Miller, I mean, he kind of, yes, he is the longest tenure coach in the Pac-12, as you know, but he wasn't really, he was the guy after the guy, but with the interim stuff and what went on, it's kind of like he wasn't. So he came in. Yes. Like you said, Hey, Arizona, yes, the pressure to win the tradition. He understood that, but he wasn't truly following like right after loot. So do you think maybe that kind of, you know, that almost like that pseudo breathing space and as tough as it was for U of A basketball and fans and obviously, you know, the athletic department too, to be like, you know, Hey, we can't, like you said, not have recruits for three years, basically. Um, but do you think that, yes, he came in with, you know, yeah, he wants to win what he did at Xavier, but it kind of with almost that little breathing space, it kind of helped Sean Miller? Absolutely, yeah. I think that was big. And like you say, the the saying is you don't want to be the guy after the guy. You want to be the guy after the guy after the guy or whatever. So, and that's kind of what he was because he, and plus, you know, towards the end of, of Lutz era, you know they they struggled they weren't quite as epic after 05 you know as far as the team so there was a little bit of a downward trend and then you had two really tricky interim years granted both years they made the tournament but there was a lot of turmoil and recruiting things that were being damaged at that time so it did help in that sense but he like i said before he had just a lot of repairing to do with recruiting and getting that program back on the the ship and and uh you know his first year was really tough i think he you know he he did you know a really nice job of the recruits he got and you know it maybe was a little bit fortunate but it was a little opportunistic opportunistic recruiting on his part that he got Derek williams and momo jones who were all but headed to usc and they, they had a situation there uh boom scoops him up and those guys become the stars of his team taking him to elite eight in his second year i mean and then all of a sudden it's like boom everything's healed you know and there was still some rebuilding going on that's why they struggled a little bit the next couple years but, uh, but, you know, really, he was able, because of that second year and, uh, you know, and then the things that happened, it, it did seem like that wasn't even really a factor. It seemed like the rebuilding years of Sean Miller was more about that they just need to get some recruits here. You know, it wasn't really about he's not lewd or, you know, we miss lewd or any of that. That was, uh, you know, I think that was maybe a little bit in the background because of the way things played out. I think now, you know, now that – that, that Lute Olson passed away, I think there's some reminiscing and, you know, people realize not, and it's not, it's not any comparison at all to the current program. It's just like, wow, 25 years or, or in the tournament or whatever, you know, close to that, uh, you know, that consistency, I think the, the immensity, the immenseness of that is kind of hitting a lot of people. And, and so he's being remembered that way. Um, but I think fortunately for the, the program now, uh, it's not really an issue. That program now is, you know, Sean Miller's been there for 11 years now and, and it's his program and, and he's done, you know, he's had his accomplishments there as well. So it's not, you know, it's sort of a separate thing, which I think probably benefits everybody. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, every coach, you know, they've, they've had influences from coaches they've worked under or played for, but they still need to have their own personality. But do you see, I mean, are there any kind of maybe smaller similarities between Sean Miller and Lute Olson that, that maybe you've kind of noticed, whether it be personality-wise or how they handle a, a game situation, anything like that. Are there kind of similar ones that you see with them? They're very different in a lot of ways, but the things that strike me that are the same is uh, they're both uh, really good uh, practice coaches that, that 
you know, uh, seem to really, um, you know, are effective the way they drill with guys. They don't waste a second. I've seen, you know, both coaches in limited amounts, the way they operated. And, and that's, that's, that's really jumped out at me the way they, they both are that way. They're both really hands-on too. Like, you know, Lute and, and Sean would both have their position, you know, they have their assistance work positions, but they were both also very hands-on and be like, you know, somebody could be running a drill, but if Sean's on one end of the court and this applied to Lute as well, if they saw something on the other end of the court, it was a guy wasn't quite doing right. They'd run over to that side of the court and, and literally start boxing out or whatever themselves. I mean, it wasn't, so there was that. And I think, I think both, and then they both strike me as pretty private people who generally will do what they have to do, uh, you know, with media and public, but would rather just kind of hang out with family and, and watch basketball or whatever. And that's, you know, that's fine. It's just, it's a little bit hard in, in, in Tucson cause it's a little bit of a fishbowl here uh, because U of A is, you know, the, the biggest game in town and, and all that, but, and, and they deal with that, but I think, you know, they're not uh, neither one of them is really, you know, going, you know, hanging out and, and, you know, chatting with people. I think they both will do it and, and they're both, you know, both comfortable with it but I think uh you know they they both would rather you know to kind of run their own lives and and uh so they're they're that way but but I think coaching wise they're they're a little bit different stylistically and and the way they approach things um you know recruiting wise they're a little different but they both have reached you know pretty good success on on each of those things so it's just a, a different way of getting there and do you think that I mean once a coach steps away and I'll lastly ask you this about Luke but you know, like you said, going to the tournaments and yeah, some years, you know, one and done, but people that, uh, you know, and again, as much as people like to say, oh, look at them, they're one and done, but they're still in the tournament. They still had a great season. So there's a lot of teams that are sitting that aren't in the tournament. But do you think when Luke finally, when, when you know, retired, I mean, even like you said, when they put the, the statue up that he kind of, when he took like a collective breath step back and realized like the dominance of what he accomplished and, you know, like I said, it's not picking on Tucson, but when your co- coaches, are, like you said, are going into California, recruiting to smaller cities, it's tough. To, it's, it's definitely a, a little bit more of a tougher sell. But do you feel like he took, kind of took that breath, like realized like what he accomplished was, I mean, again, the record speaks for itself, but just amazing and could, you know, like you said, he probably wouldn't do it outwardly, but maybe inwardly just kind of smiled and gave himself credit. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. Uh, um you know, and, and certainly everybody else was, there's a number of, uh, you know, tributes to him over the years. And, and, uh, you know, I think it said in there, but, uh, you know, um, and, and certainly everywhere he goes around town and he was out doing, he, he, you know, one of the things he loved doing was going to fundraisers. He wouldn't even, I think because he had some physical limitations, this would have been, you know, the last five, six years or whatever, uh, he'd go to fundraisers and he wouldn't be the featured speaker, but what he loved to do was just kind of, mingle with people and then they come up and say hey coach i love that oh one team or whatever and he'd just talk about it and he you know that that i think that that's probably when it set in like wow i really did something here but i will say that even so i think this is a guy who expected excellence i mean literally you know he brought iowa to a final four almost out of nowhere and then he came here and it was almost like i mean one of the things i've always thought is the probably the strongest thing about him was the way he could evaluate talent and know you know he didn't have to go off the you know the, whoever had the most stars or whatever he could just see things and i think he saw the same thing in tucson knowing that you know okay john wooden's out okay maybe i can get into ucla he had been a high school coach and a junior college coach and long beach state coach briefly so he knew Southern California. He had some ties there. He probably thought I can go in there and I, you know, I'm going to be the only thing in town here in Tucson. I can get this thing going. And that's when, you know, the stories when he first went around like a barnstorming tour in Arizona before his first year, he literally got a bullhorn out and told people say, get your tickets now because they're not going to be many tickets left after we get this thing going and it's going to get going. And it did. And he was exactly right about it. And it sounded like he's just always oh, a salesman or he's being cocky or whatever, but he delivered. And I think he, I think deep down he meant it. He's like, I'm not, I'm not leaving Iowa in a final four job if I'm not coming here and, and kicking some butt. And that's, that's what he did. And, and so I think, you know, all those years, you know, I think when he was in it, he was just in it and it was like, okay, this is what I do. Uh, you know, we're going to compete every year. And, and, um, 
you know, but and maybe afterwards, yeah, maybe it set in a little bit, but he was such a competitor as all these, you know, as a lot of these great ones are, it, you know, they think when he's in it, it's just like, this is, this is what we do. And it's not a matter of if we're going to the tournament, it's where we're going and who we're playing and, and if we're going to make the final four and that's, you know, and people literally grew up here in Tucson thinking the same things because of what he did, you know, it was like a birthright. We're going to the tournament this year, where are we going? And that's, that's the way people thought. Yeah. My sister actually was, she graduated from U of A in 97. So she got to uh, see quite a few, uh, again, even as a student, it's tough because there's a lottery. And like you said, the tickets, I mean, yeah, they a lot for some students, but it, uh, it was, it was, I know it's like she said, it was, you know, as the season went on, it was an electric time and, you know, the parade, like when they came back, I mean, it was, it just showed all those years. And, you know, like you said, Lou Olson, rivalry or not, he was always a great coach. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, evaluating talent. Cause I mean, I remember real quick, like you said, with Steve Kerr, I mean, people saying, you know, this guy doesn't have any real big offers, you know, maybe he's, he was thinking he might go play, you know, junior college, you know, or a division two school, some just to get on and, we just saw something and well, he probably saw something in that shot because it paid off for Steve Kerr in the long run. Yeah, he did. He did. And it, you know, it was, uh, you know, before the uh, three point shot was even allowed him and, and it just, it just so happened. I mean, and then Steve Kerr shot 57% and it still holds the record. It's still, I mean, that's a record that may never be broken just because of the way the game is now. Um, but just, yeah, an amazing. And then he parlays that into the NBA career he had. It's just, it's, it's amazing. But, but yeah, he, he did see that. And there was a number of other little stories. I mean, guys that, you know, that, that maybe didn't even become NBA players, but there's, you know, a, that had good careers overseas that literally had no prospects or not much out of high school. And, you know, um, and then, you know, it wasn't until later when he was routinely able to get the, the really, big time recruits but he still occasionally would would add in a guy to the mix that that wasn't and became something it's just that's that was a really strong point of him yeah well again and he he got the talented guys but you're right coaching the other guys up that's always the sign one of the great signs of a great coach but well Bruce we definitely appreciate the time obviously the tribute to coach Olson uh, he, he, he sorely will be missed in the basketball community like you said in Tucson and uh, honored by a lot of his former players and he you know People in the media, like you said, I mean, you guys did a phenomenal job at Tucson.com seeing all the tributes and, you know, players reaching out. And it's, uh, like you said, it, it's and within the same week, too. I mean, I know I mentioned to you in the beginning when we started talking. It's just, you know, you see a legend like Lou Olson go and then John Thompson. I mean, it's uh, it's with everything going on, it's crazy, obviously, with the uh, with the pandemic and what NBA basketball is, man, to lose two uh, – two legendary giants. And I mean, even Allen Iverson's uh, Hall of Fame speech where he said, you know, his mom went and begged Coach Thompson to take him and he thanked him for saving his life. So, I mean, it was, it's always with the great ones like that, like we said, it's always more that it's, it's more than just about coaching and basketball and they want their players, like you said, to go on and be, you know, if they can go on and lead great lives and they're always going to, you know, not always, but players are going to realize what their coaches did for them and the fact that they, are there for them. So yeah, they'll both be missed. And I know obviously in Tucson, Lou Olson will be greatly missed. Absolutely. I mean, but, but he won't be forgotten. I'll tell you that. I mean, they named the court after him and Bobby's named after him. They got a statue there. It's uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if they name a street after him or some more things in the years to come here. It's, it's, he's, you know, he's on that. It, 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 everybody talks about a Mount Rushmore these days or whatever. If you had a Mount Rushmore of Tucson, it wouldn't just be sports. If you just had one of Tucson in general, he'd, he'd be on there. I mean, it just, and he, you know, there might not be many other people up there too. You know, it's, it's, he's, he's, uh, you know, it, it, not just basketball, but just because of the attention he brought to Tucson and, and the way he made people feel. I mean, I had a lot of people tell me stories about that, just about how he brought the town together, which sports in general can do, of course, but, uh, you know, it was done in a unique way here, really the way, the way, uh, you know, especially those, those first couple those first few final four teams in that championship year, just uh, you know, pretty amazing feeling all over town. Oh, absolutely. Well, I was, I was teasing my sister and a few other uh, friends that went to uh, U of A saying, well, you know, by next year they should, uh, they should offer uh, you know, sports selective class or whatever, but just the, uh, the, uh, the history and the impact of Lou Olson at the U. I think uh, I w we were kind of joking. I say it in jest in a way, Bruce, but it would be, it would be pretty cool. Like from what you said, there's a, there's definitely enough there to uh, 
to have to have something like that. But yeah, he was again a great coach, mentored a lot, and um, he will he will be missed, like you said, perfectly, but uh, not forgotten. So we are uh, going to get out of here on this edition of Believe in Pac-12 Basketball. Again, subscribe anywhere you get your podcast. You just subscribe, and then every Friday you will hear new stuff from Ahmad Nayef. Uh, you can hit him up on Twitter at astarks3. I'm at Diablos00. Um, but again, anywhere you get your podcasts, Luminary, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, subscribe to Believe in Pac-12 Basketball, and we'll be bringing you a lot more of this. Any suggestions, any questions you'd like to ask, coaches, players, they're all going to be here on the home of the Conference of Champions Basketball Believe in Pac-12 Basketball. We're going to get out of here. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.